I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Today's podcast with Zenny Jardin is a little different than usual. That's probably because Zenny Jardin is different from most people. I invited her originally because I follow her on Twitter and we go back many years to the early tech days in New York City. And I noticed that the once clean and sober Zenny had become a cannabis advocate. After being diagnosed with cancer, she found that cannabis could help her deal with chemo and other symptoms. Now living in Utah and dedicating herself to her recovery, she nevertheless got embroiled in the story of Jeffrey Epstein, the multimillionaire imprisoned for recruiting underage girls for sex with him and his rich friends. A staunch feminist, she naturally empathized with the young victims, but what really stirred her up was her own proximity to a literary super agent named John Brockman, whose famous gatherings with the scientific and tech elite he represented worked hand-in-hand with Epstein's ambitions. Recent reporting linking Epstein as a financial backer to Brockman and MIT led her to make her own investigations talking with Epstein's victims and others in an attempt to expose the guilty, many prominent in the tech field and rich enough to escape accountability. This is the first time she has spoken in public about Epstein, Brockman, and Associates outside her Twitter feed. Otherwise, Zenny Jardin is a digital media commentator, tech culture journalist, and co-editor and contributor to the website Boing Boing. She is also a former contributor to Wired Magazine and Wired News and correspondent for National Public Radio. So hi, Jenny. How are you? David, I'm good. It's great to hear your voice. Same I think it's here. been a while since we've been in the same room. I bet. I know. And it's interesting because there's so much uh, to talk about and catch up on, God knows. Uh, but interestingly enough that the past and the present are kind of linked at the moment, aren't they? I'm thinking back to the 90s and and your days in New York at the Silicon Alley Reporter when, uh, you know, the Internet was young, technology, the tech scene was just coming to interview a little bit. And uh, that was then. And now we were young and the Internet was young. (laughs) Right. And we had hope. Right. We thought it would actually be a good thing. Well, that was then. And I have no idea what is happening now, but none of it feels good, David. And it's, it's just, it's really weird to realize that we were, yes, we were a part of change and we were a part of something new, but we didn't realize what that new thing would end up being. No way. Yeah. No way that we could imagine that. But what I'm thinking, you know, cause I was, I knew your boss, I guess, or your, you know, Jason Calacanis and a lot of yes. the Silicon Alley reporter and, what turned into Rising Tide Media. And in fact, it was then that I was alluding to earlier about the present because that's when I met this gentleman named John Brockman, 
who was a part of that right. scene to some extent, right? He would show up at these, you know, Jason would have something upstate in some house and uh, Brockman right. would show up and everybody would be waiting for Brockman. And um, right. here we are again and he's in the news and you're very much involved in his story. So I thought we'd just get to that up front yeah. since it does link to the past. But I do yeah. want to talk about New York in the 90s as well as that today. <laughs> I wish we could just talk about the happy stuff. Right. Well, no, I don't. I mean, the the whole point is that you and I were both present during a special moment um, in time that that's completely gone, and the New York that we walked around in then is completely gone. Right. Uh, we could we could wax on about how CBGBs doesn't exist and how condos exist where cute little bodegas and coffee shops were. Um, but the sort of the, the sadness that I feel about that New York being gone, I also feel about my sense of reality being shifted, forever shifted. Uh, many of the figures who you and I both remember sipping cocktails with after big tech events, a number of those figures I now have real questions about. And the questions that I have swirl around, uh, yes, uh, John Brockman's edge.org and the Digirati dinners, which BuzzFeed News reported were, many of them were funded directly by Jeffrey Epstein. I have questions about so many of the people who sat at those John Brockman dinners with me, their names. Some of them have been scrubbed from Brockman's website, but they're still on the internet archive. I have so many questions about the things that I must have been at the periphery of and had no idea what they meant. Every day I learn a little bit more and I am increasingly disturbed. And I want to say, by the way, <laughs> that I, I get good mental health care. I'm not that kind of disturbed. My conscience <laughs> is disturbed. Yeah, no, I understand I understood I'm not that. afraid of being called crazy. Yes, once I was, and now I'm I'm well medicated and well managed, and my conscience is what hurts now. Yeah, do you feel like you should have known more with the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing, but you weren't really exposed? No, to no, that, it's not even you? not even self blame. My conscience hurts because so many of the people who were part of that scene, people that I booked at. Uh, those rising tide uh, studio dinners. Remember when I used to work with Jason Calacanis and we would do these events in New York, in San Francisco, in LA. It was a big deal to me. That was a really important early part of my career. I, I was, I forget what the title was, but basically I booked all the talent for the events and I did whatever needed to be done to make the events happen um, up to and including scrubbing toilets. But I also booked um, the headliners and worked with our MCs, people like Charlie Rose, uh, who were named in the periphery of this swirl. We know some things about him. We don't know others. A number of the tech CEOs who I don't want to name, who are at these dinners, there's just been so many little pings and uh, blips of information about them. All I have is questions, uh, David, but I have real questions about how much 
these people knew about who Jeffrey Epstein rolled up to and what they were doing by associating themselves with him and essentially performing a kind of reputational laundering. Brockman has widely been reported, including in the MIT sort of mea culpa review that they released uh, just this past Friday, Friday evening when all the bad news dumps. The, the social network that is painted in these reports really overlaps with my own during that time. I went to these dinners. I hung out with these people. I wrote articles about these people. Brockman used to say certain things to me that didn't I didn't understand, and now I do. And, and the individuals in this group who, for instance, invested for decades in Russia and mentioned donating money to Dana Rohrabacher's campaign, that one was Esther Dyson. What's her involvement in this? We now know through the MIT report that Linda Stone uh, is said by MIT to have uh, played an important, crucial role in connecting Jeffrey Epstein and Joey Ito in the MIT Media Lab. What does she know? So many of these people, I've, I've talked to them, David, not the two names I just mentioned, but other people who were part of that circle and by virtue of their gender maybe um, were offered inappropriate sexual contact, even with, with people who are part of Epstein's, quote, family. People tell me that they know things. People tell me the things that they know. But uh, I'm not talking about the victims here. I'm talking about the, the people in tech. They don't say anything because what they care about is firewalling off any risk to themselves. Supposedly, all of this was about using neutral money that may have come from a bad guy to do good things. But the only good things I see being done are to help their own careers at the expense of the truth and at the expense of something that resembles justice for the victims. The victims aren't just Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking victims. They're all the women in science and technology, all of the people of color who, as well, who were sidelined. Jeffrey Epstein was into eugenics. And some of the people that he um, did this weird donation funny business with, with MIT and with other institutions, some of those people may, we may not know that they were into eugenics per se, but we know that they were into, say, eradicating diseases, right, through um, interesting uses of science, maybe genetics. Well, spin that a different way, and it's eugenics. And you start to wonder, what did all of these people have in common? What did they see in that association that overrode the fact that he was already a convicted sex offender? I don't know what any of this is. I'm different than a conspiracy theorist. I have no overarching theory. I just have questions. And I feel sick to my stomach every fucking day, knowing that I was on the periphery and that I didn't know. And it's only made worse by the stories of, uh, you know, what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, this ongoing, what appears to be a cover-up yes. or something along those lines. It does appear that way, yes. And at the same time, I, I need to use the moment to share the fact that the whole Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself thing appears to be a weaponized meme that I don't know who concocted it and put it forth. 
Right. And who has, uh, you know, who's directing it even to me is like, well, if there is some cover up, who is the one that's uh, putting out the yeah. orders to do this or that? Or is it just, uh, you know, how many pieces of tape can disappear and how many, you know, right. guards can be sleeping right. at the same time? And that's you right. know, sometimes it just looks that way. And maybe there's benefit in simply slowing down the works, right? So if you slow down the works long enough, John Brockman, who suffers from a progressive illness of some sort, he's always had this weird twitch and it's been getting progressively worse. John Brockman is a senior guy who has health issues and he's not going to be around forever. There is a repository of human knowledge that could lead mm. to stopping further harm. What I suspect um, is that harm is ongoing. Actually, I, I can say that I know harm is ongoing. There's already kind of whitewashing campaigns to try and save the reputations of scientists like George Church, who received funding from Jeffrey Epstein, people like Joey Ito, who had God knows what levels of connection with Epstein. Some of it's been reported. Some of it hasn't. There's a detail there. Joey had a few different uh, funds set up, um, and some of the reporting indicates that this was these were funds that Epstein's money went into. They all had the same name. It's spelled N-E-O-T-E-N-Y. Neoteny? Neoteny? Do you know what that word means? Retaining childlike qualities into adulthood and the concept that infants are born as fully sexual human beings. Yeah, and it's like there's just so many there's so many little details like this. I go back to the moment that I was you know at a desk in Manhattan. Jason Calacanis is uh 5 feet behind me. It's a cramped office. We're working off of milk car milk cartons and I'm typing in Joey Ito Neoteni and he's going to speak in an event that we're holding about you know the future of the internet and AI and science. And Esther Dyson's there and all these other people who are part of the edge network are there and they're talking about Russia and how uh, America isn't going to be the superpower of the world forever. And we've got to learn to embrace Russia. Where did that come from? And it's like, I, I, all I have are questions, David, all I have now are questions. And I don't feel as nuts as I did in August, 2019 when that Joey Ito, uh, bullshit apology in the New York Times went live. And it wasn't even revealed uh, or fully understood at the time that Joey Ito had long been a board member uh, at the New York Times. But that, that weird apology where he admitted to taking Epstein's money, but not the full extent of uh, that has come full circle over this past weekend with the MIT uh, report. And I'm reading it and I'm, I, I already, I know from my lived experience and from information that others have given me who have direct uh, knowledge, it's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, what, what happened with laundering his money at one institution happened at many institutions. And as somebody who was a former member of EDGE who doesn't want to be revealed, asked me, or told me rather, it's not so much about where Epstein's money went, it's about where it came from where it came from, where did it all come from, and who did he roll up to? And why was John Brockman involved in that? Who introduced him? How were they connected? 
all questions. Right. Well, I, I, there must be a book in it somewhere. It's not going to be written by me. No, no. I, I don't want to write it. I don't. I, I don't think. My only focus right now is on my recovery, um, maintaining my disease-free status. I was diagnosed with cancer in uh, December of 2011. It's uh, eight years disease-free, not complication-free. I've had other surgeries, other problems that came from the treatment itself and nearly lost my life from that. So um, I'm on some new meds now that I'm supposed to take for like five to seven years that will give me some good odds to not have a recurrence. 100% of my time now is about taking care of me and being completely free to share as much information as I have with uh, reporters, victims uh, who I'm in touch with, um, and anybody else who needs to know and is going to do something good with the information. That's what I'm focused on. It's not about self-interest. This is the first time I've even spoken about it other than on my Twitter feed. I don't blog about it. I don't, I don't do anything but try to contribute to keeping the conversation alive. Like the whole meme was Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. His victims didn't rape themselves. The money didn't launder itself. The story didn't kill itself. If people were as concerned about that as they were about how that fucker died, maybe this world would start to become a better place. It needs to. There is ongoing harm being done. The world is being affected. There's some stuff that I suspect that I don't know that I wish I could just blurt out now. The companies that were created out of this are still operating. And we are vulnerable when we participate with those companies. And I still participate with those companies because there are so many of them that it would be very difficult to completely detach. I mean, companies that profited from his contributions Correct. financially? Corrected, or correct, or that were even spawned on the island. Spawned, spawned on which island? Pedophile island. Little St. Jeff's. There's at least one. But, you know, it's just all speculation until somebody runs it down. And I've been screaming on Twitter and trying to encourage people who are in a position to do this kind of reporting. Um, you know, at the, the level of, imagine even just trying to get some of the offshore bank records, right? How, how, how does one accomplish that? You don't accomplish that if you're a freelancer. It takes a big institution with a lot of power and a lot of lawyers and the forensic expertise and all of the other kinds of expertise. Um, some of my frustration with the New York Times on Twitter uh, and elsewhere uh, it has to do with this issue as well. Well, it seems like something right up their alley. Otherwise, given the kind of reporting they've already done uh, and also the New Yorker, uh, you know, these uh, stories that involves uh, famous people, celebrities, and in this case, from the scientific community. But mm -hmm. they're all, you know, well-known authors at this point, famous in their own right. So you would think that that would be, you know, a target for them to report on. 
if you think about Brockman's network, people used to always ask, why is it that John Brockman, the great agent to the tech and science elite, how is it that his writers can command such incredible book advances? They were getting such outsized advances. And anyone who wanted to publish any kind of nonfiction book in science and technology wanted Brockman as their guy. He was the, he was the big bad guy who would get you the big ass advances. Well, where did they come from? Where did, where did all of that come from? And all of those people who wrote all of those books, all of those uh, journalists, people like me, and you can... You know the names already, but people like Kara Swisher, Stephen Levy, um, John Markoff at the New York Times, all of these people were other journalists who were at the dinners along with me. If you can think of it, imagine calling it an influence operation, that influence starts to touch a lot of layers, right? The news, books that are published, you're talking about academia, uh, everybody who uh, the people that I'm the names that I mentioned aren't necessarily aren't, aren't names that took his money, but people who benefited by access. You know, if you're a tech reporter like I was, I'll just speak for myself. I never took money from John Brockman or Jeffrey Epstein, but just being invited to those dinners, which I didn't know were connected to him, that was like a a, a real privilege. It was a real privilege because at those dinners I would sit down. Here's a real thing that happened. I sat down at a table with, this is where I met John Cusack, who's now a friend. He's a good guy. He and I sat down at a table where Bill Gates was holding forth on why teachers are overpaid in America. And like Jeff Bezos was there, one or both Google guys, I think, was there that night. It's just so many people, like Arianna Huffington was right at the same table. There's a photograph of it even. Uh, Dean Kamen, uh, Dean Kamen was at the table too. And that, that little anecdote alone tells you a, a little bit about the reach, right? And not all of these people knew that Jeffrey Epstein was involved. Not all of them knew Jeffrey Epstein. Not all of them chose to invest with Jeffrey Epstein. Not all of them chose to take uh, philanthropic guidance from Jeffrey Epstein. Not all of them flew on planes with Jeffrey Epstein. Not all of them went to Jeffrey Epstein's island. Some of them did. And some of them did other bad stuff. And I don't know who did what, but I would really like to know because what some of the victims tell me that they're not allowed to say because the settlement with the Epstein estate is ongoing is that there's a whole lot of truth that's not going to come out if that settlement happens. And I know that people like Mark Epstein will benefit. I know that everybody who is interested in the details not coming out will benefit. Um, but the truth won't benefit. The public understanding won't benefit. And no, while the victims might get a little pay, they won't benefit because we won't know the whole truth. Some of the people that are believed to be good guys who run or ran really big companies that all of us use all the time, some of those people did very bad things, David. Yeah. 
Well, sorry to hear that. I can't say I'm surprised. And overall, the people are not as good as you would think they are. But uh, I hope the story comes out and we could learn. I do too. And and the good thing here is that people are beginning to be willing to talk about it. It's like I feel that people are kind of edging up to the bar. And I'm not alone in my understanding. I don't know. It's entirely possible that the understanding I hope will happen will only happen like after I'm gone too. But I hope to leave behind enough of an imprint that even if the legal process, the the various legal processes that are underway and the uh, investigations that are underway, even if those processes don't yield something that resembles uh, justice and full transparency, I know that I've contributed to that process. So I'm powerless over the outcome, but I'm grateful for you for even just giving me a space to talk about it here, David. I I really appreciate it. Right. Well, thank you for coming on the show to discuss it as well. But, you know, the funny thing is that the reason that I wanted to talk to you at first had nothing to do with any of this. (laughs) (laughs) It was like something else that did, had come up, which has to do with cannabis. Oh, really? Should we talk about pot another time or now? <laughs> now, now. Let's go. Let's just. I suppose you know, it doesn't why... do a whole lot for my credibility, but um, that's well, part because... of my issue with cannabis as well, is that it, it shouldn't affect people's opinion that way. Right. Because as I understand it, you were not an advocate always, oh, no, right? That... No, so I what... was um, a a dry person who did not use um, alcohol or any other recreational drugs. Um, I still don't. And I, I use cannabis under the recommendation of my oncologist. Um, I, as I mentioned before, was diagnosed with cancer in December, 2011. And a number of my friends at the time were, they were being very serious, but one person in particular, uh, who you know, Richard Metzger, the guy who founded uh, Disinfo, Disinformation. I love Richard, um, yeah. I remember hanging out with Metzger in his um, Manhattan apartment with, with Jason and with other people in the 90s around that whole scene in New York. Um, Metzger called me up the night I was diagnosed and said, dude, you know this means you can smoke weed now, right? <laughs> and I said, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. I I got this. (laughs) And after, I think, I can't remember exactly when it was in the course of the blur that followed, but I became open to it very quickly because the the particular kinds of chemotherapy I received uh, were strongly nausea inducing. And the anti-nausea drugs that are provided are super helpful, but just like pain, right? You, if, if you have a very serious pain issue, the doctor might give you one medication and then you get like uh, a second medication for breakthrough pain. That's how pot helped me get through chemo so that I could keep down nutrition and make it to the next chemo infusion. As treatment progressed, I learned that various forms of cannabis, edible, tincture, the stuff they call RSO, which is like a very, very thick concentrated extract, vape, cookies, whatever, all of these different forms 
and different dose levels and different strains and yada, yada. It was just this whole complex world where I, I needed help to get through it. And I happened to have a, a, a female friend who works in the cannabis industry and was very helpful, had a science background, um, couldn't, couldn't have been, she was just my angel. I couldn't have had a better guide. And she helped me understand that, for instance, stimulating appetite, you might take a very small dose of a certain kind of edible that has a little CBD, a little THC, a little this, little that. However, uh, chemo nausea, coming home from an infusion, literally being unable to stop puking, even beyond dry heaving, that kind of situation, you might want a whole lot of THC all at once. Somehow it talks to the intestines or these little sensors in the in, in our uh, digestive tract, I mean, little nerves there, and says, stop freaking out. I learned all of this um, with help and with the guidance of my oncologist, with the approval and participation of my oncologist, um, and then also learned like how messed up medical access is. I take my oncologist's note to the really cool dispensary in 2012 that had the medical quality product I needed. And I'm told, no, you need a pot doc. And I'm like, she's from NIH. And they're like, yeah, you need a pot doc. Mm -hmm. That stuff is the stuff that I still, I'm, I'm still obsessed with every day. I try to help other men and women with cancer, especially learn the basics and get faith and legal resources to help themselves. It's a, it's a passionate, it's like a passion project of mine because people say a lot of crap about medical marijuana and how marijuana is so great and cannabis is so wonderful and nobody's actually doing anything to help the people who need it the most. It's a complete joke. So I love having fun with things that I'm angry about and both of these topics give me a chance to get angry constructively. <laughs> so, and and uh, you were not always that way, right? Was the, the cancer kind of changed your, your mind about how to approach yes, life? I was, well, yes, I was very judgmental and I didn't understand a lot of things. I, I was super, super anti-cannabis before my cancer diagnosis. And part of that had to do with my experience uh, living in L.A., and being around for the early first wave uh, dispensaries along the Venice boardwalk and just feeling like I lived there and I felt like, God, this is such, you know, invasive bullshit. And it just seems like the whole thing is probably controlled by organized crime. Yeah. <laughs> and it probably still is. Uh, that, that's another discussion completely. But I, I didn't understand that it really is medicine. And now I believe that I owe it to my fellow patients and, and kind of to the rest of the world to just speak clearly about that. Um, and that's part of the reason I'm so playful about it on social media. It's not a joke to me at all. The joint I'm smoking in my Twitter avatar picture um, isn't even psychoactive. You know, if, do you know that if you have like equal parts of CBD and THC more or less in, in um, a joint, you don't necessarily get that goofy, um, twinkly, euphoric high uh, when you are a cancer patient who uses it every day. Uh, in my case, 
what it helps with is like every day I wake up feeling like I'm inside a birdcage. It's slightly too small. I had a mastectomy and reconstruction. And then I had all the lymph nodes on one side uh, torn out of my arm. And um, I have a lot of muscles, skeletal problems because of that. It's like my body was torn apart and sewn back together. And I can flex one latissimus and it flexes my right breast, right? So there's all these creepy nerve sensations that I had to learn to deal with. To deal with the pain, you have to engage the scar tissue and the muscle that is now transposed to another side of the body. If you can't learn to engage with that feeling, it'll atrophy and you will be in pain and constriction for the rest of your life, period. And even opiates don't really do the trick. So pot helps me deal with that stuff. There's a word for that. It's called PMRS, post-mastectomy reconstruction syndrome. And this is, you know, it's like... Cancer was me being assigned a lifetime beat that I didn't like by an editor I could not argue with. But so speaking of, but but you're still writing for Boing Boing, right? Which is that uh, wonderful site. That yeah. Now, it used to be a magazine. Yeah. I don't know. Did you ever work on the magazine as well? I did not. When it was in uh, print. The short no. story of Boing Boing is that Mark Frauenfelder and Carla Sinclair started it as a print zine in the 80s. So you you definitely rightly remember that. And uh, they morphed it into a website in the year 2000, I think. It became a blog in 2000 at any rate. Around that time, I joined a few years later. Uh, Corey Doctorow and David Peskovitz had uh, joined previously to me. And uh, Jason Weisberger and Rob Biskitza uh, joined after me. We're all a team. There's no hierarchical structure to the organization. There's no person who says what you can write or whether this post can go live or not. It's a a happy little anarchist collective that's been bouncing around for longer than most larger media organizations. Yeah, no, it's true. It has to be one of the longest ongoing ones that I can think of. And you're still writing for it, right? Even with everything else going on in your life. Every day. Oh, every day. A lot of what I tend to write about right now has to do with the interesting ways that technology and politics and our rights to privacy, how all of that intersects. It's just kind of what I've been doing all along. And there's a lot to look at. So much of my stuff tends to be quick, fleeting, tech-adjacent breaking news analysis or, oh my God, what did Trump do today? There's a a lot of that. But all of us tend to put our happy obsessions into the mix as well. So for me, yeah, sometimes that's weed and sometimes that's golden retrievers and sometimes (laughs) that's um, really cool uh, vintage technology footage from, you know, the seventies or something. There's just all kinds of weird eclectic stuff in the mix. We are changing as individuals over time. But the fact that Boing Boing is a really kind of happy mix of a bunch of eclectic individuals' personal passions, that hasn't changed. And that's really precious. Like to have something that's that's cool and from the heart that that never became corrupted. That gives me hope. Our little indie project is still indie and still kicking. Really? Yeah. And and 
How did you even get involved with the technology scene? Did you have any kind of particular background that got you uh, involved or, you know, back then? So both of my biological parents, both, both of my parents were professional working artists. One was an art teacher, the other an editor for um, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. I was from Richmond, Virginia. And my grandfather was a an Irish immigrant with like a second or third grade education who became an amateur astronomer in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and met Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein visited my family home in Pittsburgh to wow. see this weird Irish plumber's creation, which was the world's first aluminum domed observatory that my grandpa made out of scrap metal from the Alcoa uh, plant nearby. He made his own telescopes too. And um, maybe that's where some of the, the, the genetics of it come from. Yeah, that's but, pretty impressive. Uh, like my, my first real tech job was with uh, a law firm. Excuse me, the, 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 the tech break before that, my, my first real tech job would have been uh, working at travel agencies in the 90s, being the, the young person who could figure out how to make word perfect work. And I created right. some early travel agency websites back then. And then I got into working with uh, a web services firm um, that created websites for... Did you learn uh, this on your own or mm -hmm. did you go to school for this? Or how did you just learn to pick it up? No, I was, an, I, I was an art school dropout. I ran away from home at 14, uh, got a scholarship to the San Francisco Art Institute, uh, uh, made it there about a year before the scholarship ran out, didn't have the kind of adult support I needed to deal with, you know, the trauma background and addiction issues I had and just didn't have the adult help to get it together. So I, uh, I don't have a college degree. Um, and a lot of this was stuff that I just learned on the way and aggressive, like I'm, I'm an aggressive sort of self-driven learner anyway, but the truth was that much of what I wanted to learn was not taught at the time. It, nice. You couldn't just go to school to learn how to make websites. There was nothing like that. And so dropping out of school, I think even Jason Calacanis, I remember he, he got a lot of flack for this, but I, I remember he gave a, a graduation speech one time where he, he told everybody to, to quit college, quit, quit the university and just go work on the internet because they would learn much faster. And at the time he was not wrong. Right now, he's a kind of the king of the angel investors. Uh, he's yeah. written a book, How to Invest in Technology Startups, and he has this uh, conference, right, um, that is full of people, like, sort of pitching their ideas, the angel list. He's had several incarnations and Absolutely. done various things. Yeah, so yeah, and, and I met Jason um, in an earlier point of his career, when Jason started a publication called Silicon Alley Reporter. We also had a publication called Digital Coast Reporter that was based out of LA. And all of this was run by a company called Rising Tide Studios. And yeah, that's, that's the part of his career that I was present for. And we've remained in touch over the years. And it's just, it's one of those really special friendships where I'm, I'm glad I'm glad to have a living connection to that part of my life uh, as well. Yeah, you know, when you when you have yeah. friends from sort of different eras of your life who 
who help you to remember the truth when your own memory gets fuzzy. That's true. Yeah, he's. Uh, I've yeah. remained friends with him as well, and uh, he, he numbers me as as among his mentors. Uh, for beautiful. helping him when he was doing his uh, publishing, his print magazine. And for a time, he was a columnist at paper wow. as well. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember that. So then you went on from there to become kind of like the go-to person for a lot of like media. You had a TV show, right, with Boing Boing, and then you would appear on talk shows and news yeah. NPR and things of that nature. And did that all just sort of end with the cancer thing or or was it more? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. The cancer diagnosis made it impossible for me to work during cancer treatment. And afterwards, like it it really affected my brain. You know, it really did. And so I couldn't, I, I couldn't maintain the stress level or the pressure level. But I also, it took me a while before I could even form complete sentences. It it took me a while before I could do live radio again. I I contributed to NPR over a number of years and did radio documentary series. They they ran week-long series for me from uh, Tibet and Northern India, I think a separate time from West Africa, a separate time from Guatemala. I contributed to reporting of the 2013 genocide trial of the Guatemalan former dictator Jose Efrain Rios Montt. Um, His regime was responsible for the deaths of many thousands of indigenous Maya people and student leaders, labor leaders. That work was on PBS NewsHour. And yeah, I, I, like 2013, I was walking up to tanks in Guatemala uh, during a state of siege where no journalists were allowed to go, uh, and guys were pointing guns at me, and I was saying, "Hey, uh, I need to speak to your general about the civilian massacre." <laughs> and oh, God. I remember telling my therapist when I got back, like, you know, um, relationship with my boyfriend has fallen apart. Don't have any money on my bank account. The side effects from the meds are making me insane. And I, you know, my leg is swelling up and all this weird stuff is happening. (laughs) And she would, she would tell me, um, like, you know, that you don't have to walk in front of tanks anymore, that you can just stay put and find some help and make your life manageable again. And it, it had just never occurred to me that I didn't need to prove myself or like knock everything off on the bucket list immediately after being given a good verdict by my cancer docs. So at that point, I started to slow down and address some stuff that I'd been running from for a long time. And the focus for me has really been recovery uh, since around that point. A lot of things fell apart for me. It was very, very painful. And I had to look at my part in it and what I needed to get better. And I am better, and I'm making it a day at a time. Yes, and and still remaining a force uh, for change. uh, I hope so. That's a good thing for you to say. That means I'm doing my job. Yeah, I mean, you're making noise in the right places and bringing up important facts and stories and things people should know about and think about. Uh, You know, just we grazed a couple of them here. But, you know, I'm sure well, like, there's many David, more. That's, that's my bucket list, you know? I don't need to go to pet the elephants or go on a spaceship or do all this other goofy stuff. 
this is it, you know, saying all that I know that I think might be part of a pattern that will make sense to somebody speaking out in support of vulnerable populations who, who can't be heard or, or aren't being heard, um, trying to say for the victims what they maybe can't say for themselves because they're not allowed to. Those are, those are things that are meaningful to me. And the fact that I'm free enough because I don't have a TV show now, I don't have a book deal now, I don't have to toe the line for some boss who's going to be upset at me if I say the wrong thing on Twitter because I don't have any of those things. This is the price that I feel I should be paying for the privilege of survival is to do some good for the rest of the people around me, to do some good to counteract the bad that I was apparently a part of just to do good. So, you know, people talk about the the call out culture of today Hmm. and, you know, obviously there's lots to be called out on. Do you see a way out of it or is there something that can be done to move past that or or was it too early to to look at it that way? Yeah. I, I don't even, I know what the term means. But I, I, I think it's kind of a garbage term. I believe that the fact that so much of our discourse happens on Twitter and Facebook is responsible for why so much of our discourse is so twisted. I believe that the fact that CNN and MSNBC and Fox are all these nauseating, slightly different hues of the same thing, to me, uh, I feel like that's not helping our discourse. I feel like I want to be one of those Gen X jerks that quotes Marshall McLuhan all over the place, but the medium is the message. And right now the medium are these social media apps that were created by jerks and they're being exploited by our enemies. How can anything good come from that? I don't know what comes next. I don't have the answers. I'm not a futurist, but I'm just going to continue to be uncomfortable <laughs> and, and to talk about it and hope that it helps somebody else. Well, thank you very much for spending the time with us and, and letting us it's into an your head a little bit and find out it's more an honor, and understand David. what's going on. I feel the same way. I'm a big fan. Oh, and wow. uh, I look forward to seeing you in a face-to-face one of these days. You too, David. I'm sending you a really big hug, a major uh, hug. <laughs> I'm feeling it. I feel it. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Thank you.